Well, I'm going to speak uh, a little bit on uh, forgiveness, and we're going to uh, look at it just from God's perspective and what forgiveness is. Uh, you know, we have, and many of you that have listened to my messages would know that forgiveness is much more than, than God punishing Jesus um, in order to, to satisfy His anger or His, his uh, wrath. He's come to actually set us free. And that's what we're going to look at. And we're just going to look at some examples in the Bible and just go through this message so that our hearts can be established um, just more and that the message that God has put upon our hearts about His love can be confirmed. <clears throat> now, last night I spoke a little bit about um, shame. Uh, where the Bible says, you know, when Adam and Eve, they were naked and unashamed, but then after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you know, we found that they were um, ashamed. Uh, and they tried to hide themselves. And the Bible says that Adam was in the garden and he heard the voice of the Father. He heard the voice of God in the garden. If you go and read it in Genesis, this is what it says. It says, and they heard the voice of God and hid themselves. And then God started to call for Adam. So what it actually, the, the picture that it gives is that God was in the heaven, uh, uh, I mean, not in the heavens, in, in the Garden of Eden, and He was talking. He was fellowshipping like three beings, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that would talk and laugh. And you could hear them. Imagine, you know, in the woods where it's silent and quiet, and you hear some of the birds and stuff, and then you hear three people coming, walking in the, in the garden, and they are talking. And then all of a sudden, uh, God realized, you know, Adam is not where we would normally meet him. And it's like, Adam, where are you? You know? Um, and <clears throat> the picture we have of that is Adam hiding away behind a tree. Now, I just think that is just a type and a shadow or a, a story where we can actually see what was going on. And a more modern day picture of that would be um, if, if a husband and wife would sit at a table and they would normally in the morning, you know, just have breakfast together and um, laugh, have fun, talk about the day and those kind of things. And let's say the husband cheated on his wife and then one morning when they are fellowshipping again, you know, she's making the coffee and, um, you know, and, and he's coming to the table and they're sitting and they're talking and they're talking like, but they, that, I mean, they say the same things, they smile the same smile, but he's not there. You know, his mind is in another place. He's actually ashamed. You know, he's, he's in a place where he, he sees her as pure and not himself. You know, and wherein she would, after, a while, after some time, if the guy's name would be Adam, say to him, Adam, where are you? You know, you're not here. Where are you? You know, and he's, he's hiding away. Um, and th I, I think that's the kind of thing that happened in the Garden of Eden, where, where Adam and Eve was in a place where their consciousness changed, where they looked differently at God, and they were ashamed. One of the things <clears throat> we said last night is, you know, when I was, um, years ago, when I couldn't afford uh, a medical aid, and you know, South Africa, I don't know if it is here like that, but we've got the government system, uh, government hospitals and everything, and then you get your private clinics. So, the, if you want to go to the private clinic, you need a medical aid, otherwise you, you, you will not be able to pay it, you know, although it is still, at, I think, a tenth of the price of what things are in the U.S. Um, <clears throat> and uh, it is still, uh, it's just too expensive to, for a normal guy to just go there and pay whatever they charge for an operation and those kind of things. So you've got the medical aid, but with the government, you basically pay nothing. You know, and it's all the government that does it. So, and obviously, you would find these hospitals because they're in competition with one another. One will have a better machine than the other one, and, and that's how things go, and that's how they draw people. So it was kind of seen as a, a little bit irresponsible if you don't have a medical aid and want to go to the government. You know, what if your child's in an accident? You know, it's like th that kind of a thing. And when we would stand in groups and we would talk, <coughs> We would, um, you know, people talk about what they do in life, and then the one guy would talk about, you know, he's gone from this medical scheme to that one and whatever. And when I would look at that, because they could have the money to afford that, and I couldn't, I was ashamed. You know, you felt in your heart ashamed. It wasn't that you've done anything wrong, you know, but you were ashamed because of, because there's not an equality. 
You know, there's not an equality. And I think in the same with, with um, we, can, we can define ashamed as, well, I've done something wrong and now I feel ashamed. And then we can define ashamed as, I'm, I don't see myself on the same level. And now I'm ashamed. And I think the shame that is not on the same level is the most um, powerful negative force in society today. Because that's how all of us feel, you know, or m most of us. We're ashamed if we park our old car or not even the newest one. There's somebody with a newer model, you know, that parks it there. Or somebody that's got better clothes or whose child goes to a better school or whatever. You feel that shame uh, on you. And that's the kind of thing that Adam felt. He came and he looked at God and he saw God as a being that is different than him, you know, that's on a different level. This God can self-exist. This God can produce eternal life for himself. But now I've come into a place where I cannot. And here I come with my little works, you know, and I stand in this shame of I cannot produce eternal life for myself. I cannot produce happiness for myself. And I am ashamed. Um, and what we said last night, the only way that shame could be taken away is if God could present man on the same level as what he is. And if we could have a vivid picture of man in the same level as God, wherein God took a man and made him, raised him without sin, immortal, to live forever, to be at the right hand of the Father. And if that could be in human form and we can see it, then we can approach God without shame. You know, it's like if you're ashamed, if somebody has got a better car than you and this guy feels that he cannot have a quality conversation with you because you are so ashamed of your car, he would say, man, let me then buy you the same car. You know, so that you can have the same car, so that I can get to your heart, that we can talk about things, because I see that you are somewhere lost in your shame. So let me just end that, that I can get to your heart, that I can actually shape you, form you, and influence you into a way where you can share in my quality of life. It's almost like a child that sits at a table and, with, with um, you know, and uh, the, you want to have a good conversation with him, and all of a sudden you see that he's just seeing this bowl of sweets on the table. And his eyes all the time going to the sweets, you know, and he cannot concentrate. So what do you do? You give him some of the sweets so that he can have peace. <laughs> you know, so that you can actually, you know, that you can get to his heart. And I think that's the kind of thing that, that man was walking around with. It's like, here's a God that's got eternal life, eternal joy, eternal peace. He's got... Um, He's got holiness, righteousness, and everything. And here am I, a man who tries to find my life by my own ability, and I cannot do it. And here comes this eternal God that is flooded with love, flooded with goodness, and I, I'm not flooded with that. I'm flooded with bitterness and hatred and everything. And this God wants to love on me, and I mean, I'm so occupied with my works. I'm so occupied with my righteousness. I'm so occupied, how am I going to preserve my own life and try and live longer and try and have eternal life and all those kind of things that he says, man, let me just give you all that for free that I can get to your heart. You know, we've, we've, made, <clears throat> um, we've made forgiveness a thing wherein God doesn't look at our sin and then we're so happy that he's not going to judge us. In the meantime, forgiveness is something much greater than that. It includes the setting free of things that we do in our life that can destroy us. But it is actually so much more. It is, it's a setting free for the purpose of getting to your heart and sharing His life with you. So if we get to, <clears throat> if we think of God and what we said last night is He had to bring forth something that when we can look at that, we can have peace in our heart. It must be an assurance. It must be something that we look at the cross, when we look at the resurrection, and we see our inclusion into, into that, that we can come to a place where we are saved from our effort to try and save ourselves, where we can believe and trust and rely upon Him. We need to, we need to realize that <clears throat> the heart of man had to be delivered from the lie that the devil told um, Eve in the beginning. And that was that man couldn't trust God. So God had to come and bring forth something that our hearts can actually believe in Him and trust Him. 
because he was not put in a place. And if we look at God in, you know, how God is preached um, in church, not just church, if we look at Buddhism, if we look at Islam, if we look at all the different ways of how people try to uh, get to God, that kind of a God can actually not be trusted. You know, the human heart cannot trust such a person. You know, that tries to hide himself, that's playing hide and seek with you, that's gonna, I mean, the, the, the true God of the heaven and the earth didn't try and hide himself from man. He came and revealed himself in man, inside Jesus. And he revealed who, he revealed his plan for you inside Jesus, put that in the heavens, you know, and poured out a spirit that speaks to our hearts every day. So God, when man, <coughs> when man sinned, and, and I, I want to define sin. Sin doesn't mean not to, uh, to, to, to break a commandment. Sin is something completely different. Sin is something that, is, that actually means I'm not a partaker of what God has planned for me from the beginning. That is a sin. In other words, when God looks at you and He sees that you're not happy, He says, it is a sin that they are not happy. If he sees you don't have peace, he says, it's a sin that my people are not living in peace. And when he sees people working hard to try and find peace and joy by their works, he says, it is a sin that they are working like this to have peace and joy. Let me forgive them from their sins. Let, let me divorce them from their sins. So God had to bring something forth in Jesus Christ that can cause the heart of man not to try and have peace by what he does or by what he owns. Now that would be something powerful that he had to do, you know, because we live in the material world with things and stuff and we even have our own ability that we can feel all the time. So he had to bring forth something that is so powerful that when we behold that, we can find that our hearts go to rest. We are forgiven, set free from it. One of the definitions of, for, uh, for forgiveness, according to Thayer, means to divorce. Now just think of that. I know you've heard this before, but think of, of divorce. You know, if you divorce someone, it means you end the contract, you end the obligation, you end the life together. You send away. If you've been married to somebody, I mean your whole life was united with that person. The fruit that came forth in you or the fruit that you were bearing was in your union with that person. And when a divorce takes place, it means the house is now empty or you've moved to another place where this contract, the legal contract that you had has been ended. That is divorce. So when God talks about forgiveness, He wants to divorce us from that which we got married to in Adam. Mm, that is forgiveness. Now, I touched a bit on it last night, but let me use this analogy. <clears throat> if we look at um, a guy in Africa, in the Africa bush, and I was preaching this the other day, and this just came to my mind, and just touches my heart every time I tell it. If you think of somebody in the Africa bush that lived there in the 1800s and all he had was a mud hut and he had some cattle there and he lived off the wild fruit, you know, in the bush and um, he had a wife and, and then he has a wife and then he, um, he's got children. I mean, obviously when he's, he's first, especially in African culture, if your first, first child is a boy, it is such an important thing, you know. Here, here he's, he's got a boy. I mean, he's got a dream for this child. He's, he's thinking of how this guy will have his own mud hut next to his. And how he would have his own cattle, you know, two or three cattle walking there in the field. And how he would live a simple life, just like him. And... Uh, go with him walking in the, in the woods, picking some of the wild berries and the mangoes and the whatever you'd find and, and live off that. And he would want to see this son sharing the joy of having his own son, you know, and, and all of that. And um, here this father has got this boy and the boy starting to grow up. And about the age of 16, 17, all of a sudden there lands a ship on the coast, African coast. 
And here we find some guys getting off the ship with guns. And they're looking for strong young men. And they hunt him down. And he's running through the woods, you know, and he's, he's, he, he gets caught and cuffed and put in a, on a ship in chains. And he gets shipped off to either England or America. And then he gets taken from the ship, put on a plane, you know, or a, 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 in the market. And then there comes people, and then they buy him. <laughs> and then they take them to their farm to work on the farm. And all of this is legal. Nothing wrong with it. It's legal. So this guy who does this, he's not even sinning, doing it. This is how it works. And sitting on the farm, he's working, and as he works, we find two different systems. We find the system of the slave owner with his slaves, and we find the system of the father with his children. And now when we define, uh, if we're going to define sin, how are we going to define sin? Are we going to define sin in the, in, the, in the parameters of the father and son relationship? Or are we going to define sin in the context of this slave master with his slaves? Because if you're going to ask the slave master, can you define sin for me? He would say, sin is disobedience to my commandment. That's what he would say. That's what he will say. He will say, listen, man, if I say to this slave, do it, and he doesn't do it, that is sin. And since I am a good, and since I am, uh, stand for what is right, it, would not, it wouldn't be wrong if I go and whip him if he's disobedient. Because I paid for him. He is mine. And this is my law. You know, and to him, it would be completely ridiculous if the slave even comes with an idea on how to do something on the farm. My goodness, you know, he is my slave, and that is sin. And the way you would define forgiveness in this perspective of the father, or of the slave owner and the slave, forgiveness would be defined as. I am not looking at what you've done wrong, you know, or um, if you owe me money, the way I'll forgive you is someone else must pay the money, then you are free, you know, or the way we would define um, uh, uh, rest here is, okay, you're not working today. I'm still the owner, I still own you, and rest is defined in you don't work today, you can work tomorrow. Or rest is defined, someone else is doing your work. That is how we would define rest. How would righteousness be defined in this? Righteousness would be defined in the slave owner owning the slave and giving him work. And this slave needs to do his work. That's how righteousness would be defined. I'm righteous because I've done, I've, I've made my, my 50 bricks today. I'm righteous. Unrighteous would be defined if you've made 49. That's unrighteous. You've only made 49 today. Then you qualify for what? For punishment. And then if I want to redeem you, or if you need to be redeemed, somebody else needs to make your brick for you. Then you can be free. And we've used this system, and we've even tried to define the work of Christ inside this system. So Yet it is still slavery language, man. Mm -hmm. It's not something that can actually set the heart free. It is something that I, I know that a slave, if, if he is so deep into slavery, that you can speak that language to him and he would start to see some form of light. And it would be good news to him. You know, somebody else made my bricks for me today. Wow, that's good news. You know, the, 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 the master is not going to beat me today. Wow, that's good news. Can you see how shallow that good news is? Yeah. It's so shallow. There's no life in that good news, man. It's good news for somebody whose mind has been crippled by the system. But it's not good news to the Father. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's no good news to the father. The father is oh, he's not going to beat my son. The father doesn't even want to hear that. The father wants to hear, the father doesn't even want to hear when his son is coming home. He wants to see his son home. Yeah. That's good news to the father. You know, we've had this thing of, of uh, maybe I'll get, get to talk a bit about it in some of the sessions, but we've had the good news as, if the good news is not somebody else is making my bricks, if the good news is not somebody's taking the beating for me, what is the good news then? You know? It's like, imagine I'm in America and, and uh, I call my son at home. I said, listen, I've got very good news for you. And he says, what is it, Dad? He says, man, and I tell him, man, just wait. I want to tell you this myself when I come home. I'll show you. And I put down the phone. He's happy. I'm happy. And in the meantime, you know, he goes to a party and he gets drunk and he wrecks my car. Now, I mean, I've still got the good news, isn't it? In my heart, I've got the good news for him. My wife calls me, tells me what's going on. I said to her, did he get hurt? No. Well, glory to God. I'm just so happy he's not hurt. That's my heart. Okay? Meantime, one of his friends, imagine this, goes to him and tells him, you know what? Your dad must be very, very angry. You've disappointed him. You know? And you know that when he comes back, you know, he's going he's gonna to punish you. That's what's going to happen. I mean, how will I feel? I mean, how will my son feel? He will start to feel this, this anguish in his heart. You know, what can he do? This has happened. And all of a sudden, his mind would be, uh, would be so gripped with this, with this fear of punishment. Meantime, it's not even true. And then goes on and say, you know what, I think what you can do, which can make it better, is if you just mow the lawn, <laughs> be friendly to mom. <laughs> In my youngest the other day, I said to him, this typical teenager thing, I said to him, my son, and he's so honest, I said to him, Ileana said to me, you know what, and when he comes from school, he doesn't even greet me properly. So I said, let me speak to him. So I said, son, what's going on? Why can't you speak nice to mom? He said, dad, to be honest, I'm just too tired. <laughs> I'm too tired to speak nice. <laughs> I said, I think you need a week's rest. You know, so go nowhere. Just stay home and rest. <laughs> and he rested and it worked. You know, well, <laughs> I'm too tired to be nice. <laughs> Have you ever heard such a thing? Well, then you need rest, my boy. So, now imagine, you know, this, this child at home, and he thinks he's wrecked his dad's car, and now his friend comes with this advice, you know, when, when I did that, I just did this for, for, I was friendly to mom, and I did this, I helped at the house, and whatever, and that will really make the punishment not that bad. And then later on he comes and he says, listen, man, you know what I, I heard your dad did? Your dad went and punished your brother for what you've done. So now you're not going to be punished at all. I mean, how will I now, how will he feel towards his brother? It's like, my gosh, you know, it's like, and here I come home and I'm looking for my son and I don't see him running up to me. I thought, what's wrong? Yeah, that's what I will think, what's wrong? And then I will call him and say, son, what's wrong? He says, dad, you know, I wrecked your car and I, I know you, you're a good dad and, and you will punish me now. I said, what? What are you talking about? I'm just so happy that you haven't died or that you weren't injured or something. You know, you could have died. Then he says, oh, that's good news. You know, that, that is really good news. I thought you were just going to beat up on me. I thought you were angry. Um, but Dad, let, let, let me come, I, I just want to show you something. I want to show you, you know, I've mowed the yard, and I've done this, and I've done that. And you know what, Dad, I am still going to wash your car, and I'm going to, and I'll tell him, Son, what are you busy with? This is not what it's about. Why are you doing this? 
says, well, so, Dad, I thought that this is what I had to do, you know, uh, for you. No, you, you didn't have to do any of that. Oh, that's good news. I mean, it's good news that Dad's not angry. It's good news that Dad is not, um, I don't have to do all these things to win his favor. Wow, that's really good news. Well, Dad, I want to just thank you, you know. Um, I feel a bit bad towards my brother, but that you've punished him for me. Son, what's wrong with you? I didn't punish anybody for you. Well, so you didn't feel that you need to punish somebody to forgive me? No, not at all. Well, that's good news. Wow, I've got, got a lot of good news today, but you know, Dad, if that was a lie, that was a lie, that was a lie, what's the good news you actually wanted to tell me <laughs> in the beginning? You see, we've, we've come to a place where we, and please know, I'm not belittling what's happened on the cross. I'm going to explain what's, what, what I believe took place in the cross and why the cross is needed and why without the shedding of blood we couldn't be set free and all those kind of things. That's all true. But I want us just to think a little bit inside family logic on what's taking place. So we've, got, we've still got this place of what is the real good news? So we can have a slave in slavery saying, it's good news that the slave master is not going to punish me today. It's good news that I don't have to make 50 bricks, but 30 bricks. But that's not the good news that's in the heart of the Father. That's not the good news. This news makes you feel good while you're in slavery. That's all. It doesn't have the power to really set you free. What would be sin defined in the heart of the Father? He would say, it's a sin that my son is not sharing in my life. That's a sin. It is a sin that my son is working for someone else to have a little bit of peace. He would actually say, it's a sin that my son must experience joy by if he made bricks or not. It's a sin that my son is part of a system where sin is defined by his works. <laughs> That's a sin. And I want to divorce him. That would be forgiveness. I want to divorce him from that system. And bring him to a place where he can be a partaker of what I've planned for him from the beginning. You know, the Bible says God has known us before we were even born. Now, the way I see that is, it's not that we magically lived in heaven somewhere and then God has spent time with us there and He ruined our lives <laughs> by incarnating us into a, this human body and then given us in this human body now the opportunity to go to heaven or hell. I mean, why, He should have just left me then where I was. The way I believe that God has known us before time is the way I've known my sons before they were born. I've known them. I, I tell you, with my sons before they were born, I was riding bicycle with them, I was catching fish with them, I was playing cars with them. Before they were born, I was sitting, having fellowship with them, laughing, and everything. How? By imagining how it would be with them. I knew them. I've already been intimate with the life that I've dreamt for them. And that's how God made us. He's known us. He spent time with you before you were even made. Dreaming your life. Then He brought it forth. And He had this life that He dreamt for us. And then he, uh, sin would be, this is what the Greek word for sin means, not to, to have a share or to be given something and you are not partaking of it. Not to have a share in is the root word for sin. Not to have a share in, to miss the mark or miss the goal. And as this father in the bush would have a goal for his son, and his son is not partaking of that because he was taken captive by another system, he would say, it is a sin. They are missing the goal. And I want to set them free from that. So God had to come up with a master plan 
that could set the human mind free from the system and will take man by his own power cannot be set free from this mindset let me tell you something the most difficult thing to change is your mind mm -hmm. is your thought is your belief you cannot change your belief you need the God of heaven and earth to bring forth something so radical so powerful so spiritual that it can actually touch your heart so that God by his doing can bring forth a new belief in you yeah. that's why the Bible says a new heart will I put in you I will write my laws in your heart and in your mind and I will be your God and you will be my people that is it now, the worst thing that can ever take place is if this slave has got no reference to who his father is. And imagine if he believes that this slave master is his father. <laughs> that will destroy him. That will destroy him. That will be the end. It, it's like... If you eat of that tree, you'll die. You cannot live and believe that. We have not been made for that. It will destroy you, man. And what we've done is, we have, we have, we have gone and we've tried to explain the salvation plan from an angry Pharaoh that actually gave his son <laughs> and then punished his son for the bricks you didn't make and then the sun made the bricks for you and now you can have peace in Pharaoh's house it's almost as if as if the Pharaoh became a good Pharaoh and not a bad Pharaoh the gospel is not the message of how God became good the gospel is not the message of how God came the gospel is the message of how God came to the Pharaoh and told the Pharaoh you need to let my people go. <laughs> That's what you need to do. And how, the, how God came and killed the firstborn of the Pharaoh. Meaning, ending that, that way of living, ending that whole kingdom. How we ended all of that. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news of how God destroyed the Pharaoh's system that keeps you in slavery. That's the good news. You know, if this guy here is, is taken captive by a slave, and we find, and in, in, let's use another uh, example. Imagine my son gets keep kidnapped by uh, some s slave master somewhere, and he's working on somebody's farm. You know, he can have this whole system there going and whatever, but if he sees my face, on that farm he knows he's going home he's not into you know how many bricks have I made who made what bricks he's not into should I be punished shouldn't I be punished he, that's not good news to him the good news is listen I am being set free from this whole system and the good news is not what am I gonna do when I come home I know what what is home I'm an heir I'm a co-sharer in the life of my father and what God did in Jesus was he came to bring he came to end this whole system that's what he came to do and if a slave's mind is so fallen that you cannot come and talk family logic to him you will incarnate and go into his depth and darkness and you will try in his terms and in his logic on legal terms try and explain something that can just get his heart free like I would go home and if my son heard lies about me I would tell him I, I will address all the lies inside the system that he believes to set him free but at the end of the day I've never been angry I've never been upset and if I see my son believe all these lies I want to correct all the lies so that his heart can get free from all the lies so that he will be able to accept the good news that I've actually got for him so, um, in order for God to 
forgive us. He had to bring forth something, and I've said it last night, I want to repeat that. He had to bring forth something that when we look at that, we can see and be persuaded that our Father has always loved us and that it will set us free from slavery. And the only thing that could be, and, and, and the only thing that could bring that forth is the cross and the resurrection. Nothing else could do that. And I will explain it now. Without the cross, it wasn't possible for God to win our hearts. Imagine my son is in all that sin and all those kind of things, and I come to him and I, I tell him, listen, man, I love you. Listen, man, you, you, I've always loved you. And imagine he cannot hear that. He cannot hear that. He cannot, he cannot see that I love him. He cannot see that I've, that I've got this wonderful promise for him that I will fulfill. Imagine I've come and I said to my son, I call him and I said to him, you know what, I've got this wonderful promise uh, for you and whatever. And he, I, I come home and I want to talk to him. And imagine I tell him, you know what, this is how I've always felt about you. And imagine he cannot believe that. I try to, through words, and he just cannot believe me. What will I have to do to win his heart? There's something that can win his heart. And what would that be? Because he struggles to believe me. And I need to restore faith because he became scared of me. He's ashamed. He, he feels guilty. What would it be? It would be if I come and I tell him, you know what? This is the good news that I have for you. Um, I'm going to take you and, and you're going to travel with me one year through all of Europe, through Canada, America, and wherever in Africa I'm going to preach, you're just going to come with me and we're going to see all these places and wonderful folk. And then he says, well, that sounds good, but yes, Dad, if you say that, let me just go and mow the lawn. You know, and you see he's trapped in that. What will you have to do? Imagine you had the ability to say, let me show you something. You, you, you bring forth someone just let, just, that is just like him, that looks exactly like him, that's got everything just like him, inside his sin, inside his despair, inside all of his sin, a guy who's car, who wrecked the car, a guy who got drunk, a guy who got all of that. And you can say, you see this guy? Th this guy is also my son. He's got all of the sin you have. He's got it. And I promise him that I will take him on a year trip. And if this, if, 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 if this son, that is, his heart cannot be won, can look at the new one and see himself 100% in that, and he can see that the father promises the son and then buys all the tickets and take him on the trip, and come back a year later and show him. You see, I've promised this son, which is exactly as sinful as what you were. I promised him and I fulfilled it. That can win his heart. Now let me explain that. In an even more powerful way, and this is, this is what Jesus did. He said, man's heart is so found in slavery, sin, and guilt, and transgression, and all those kind of things, that they cannot believe if I tell them, I grant you eternal life and a place in the Trinity, and you are the heirs of the kingdom. They cannot believe it. So what I'll do is, I will take a man that is without any sin. Then I will take all their sin, and I'll put it on that man. And he will become sin. To the point that I will, th that, that these people, when they look at that man, that they will say, cursed, absolute sin, which is them. It would be their sin. It wouldn't be anybody else's sin, but their very sin. And then I will make a promise to a man who became sin. And that promise would be on the third day, I'll raise you. On the third day, I'll raise you without sin without death and you will be an heir of what only God possesses which is immortality and then you will look we can look at that guy 
hang upon the cross, which is our sin. Remember, Jesus didn't have his own sin. So God says, I promise you eternal life. I can't believe you, Lord. Okay, let me prove it to you. I'll take your sin, I'll put it in someone else. And since this guy will not have his own sin, if he becomes sin, it will be your sin. And then I'll promise this guy with your sin. I will raise you up on the third day. And all he will do is he will just believe me. That's all he'll do. He will not even try to save his own life. He will hang there unto death. <clears throat> but he will believe me. And then when I raise him up, then that new life that he was raised up into, you will see that is the promise that I have towards you, fulfilled in Christ. And then when you see that, then your heart can be persuaded that this life is now your life since the death was your death and the sin was your sin. Amen. It's got nothing to do with a punishment system. Mm -hmm. You know, guys, when I, when I started to talk about this, um, that God, God was not angry, that God didn't want to punish somebody. I mean, I lost a lot of churches that don't want me to preach there anymore. But let that be, <laughs> you know. We want the truth that can set people free. I know what this did for my heart. I knew how it sets me free from the power of sin. I know how this brings forth, because when this happened, two things happened to me. I saw my new life, and my heart could trust the Father. Amen. Because he didn't have wicked ways. He wasn't, I mean, I cannot trust the Pharaoh. Now, if my God or my Father has got the same belief system as the Pharaoh as pertaining to righteousness, punishment, sin, and good works, even if He comes and decides to be good to me today, my heart will still struggle to trust Him, man. You know, trust... You, you, you know, let me put it this way. The subconscious mind knows more than what the conscious mind knows. The subconscious knows that if you trust God with, for eternal life, and you're not trusting Him to heal you from sneezing. You're not trusting Him to get you a nice seat on the airplane. That's not what you're trusting Him for. You're trusting Him with eternal life. You know how, what equitable character a person needs for me to leave my children at their house. I will never leave my kids just at anybody's house. No way. That guy needs to have some of God's attributes in his heart and in his life. Otherwise, I cannot let my, my son go there. Now, that is with your child. Now, what about eternal life? The human heart needs great assurance it needs a loving person that is, doesn't have flaws in his character in order to really trust and go to rest that say, you know what, even if I die, I'll be raised. I don't even try to preserve my own life. It's okay. Because he's got my life. So we cannot, we need, when we look at the gospel, that's what God also knows. He knows that He needs to come and persuade our hearts that He is a loving Father. That's why He came and he's, He showed Himself as a friend of sinners. He tried to show it in the Old Testament already, that He's a friend of sinners. How? He said, build me a tabernacle amongst all these stiff-necked Jews. That's what he said. And where was his tabernacle? Right amongst the sinners. <laughs> right there. He lived there. Where was God's house? Right there amongst the sinners. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see God is here with us. Moses, in, in Exodus 34, he, God showed him his grace and his mercy. And then Moses said, well, if we have found grace in your sight, come and live amongst us as stiff-necked people. What he was saying is, God, if you want a place where you can be yourself and use a lot of these attributes that you have, I know a nation that is so difficult that you can come and live amongst them. I'm going to say something that will not make me very popular, but hear this, and I, I want you to hear me. I'm not against Jews at all, 
But one thing that the Jews have gotten right is to hate the Christ. Not all, but the majority of the people in that time that were leaders, that were standing up, was against Christ. And why would God choose such a stiff-necked people? So that He can show the whole world that even if they organize and orchestrate my death, even if after I've died and I was raised from the grave, and they say, truly, He is the Son of God, and directly after that, fabricate a lie, saying He was stolen from the grave, hating to see the gospel being preached to the, Gentile, to the Gentiles, that God says that I have not thrown my people away. Come into a place where he can display his love for people. And he uses, amongst those stiff-necked people, a guy to influence the whole world called the Apostle Paul. Isn't that the love of God? Isn't that the goodness of God where God says, it is not right that my people are going through this. Look at how their souls are vexed with sin and bitterness and hatred and immorality and all those kind of things. It is not right that they have this life. I will bring forth something that can set them free from that. And I will continue and I will, I will have this eternal patience for they are my people. I mean, when do you get tired of trying to see something good come to your child? Never. It is impossible. Even in human terms, we can become very upset, but we will never go to a place where we say, well, man, I just wish he dies. Or worse than that, cause his death. We will never. We can see how our child dies while he's using drugs and all those kind of things, but we will never be the orchestrator of that death. That will never be our punishment for them. It will always be the wages of sin. Sin kills them, not us. And our love will be seen in how we constantly reach out to these children. And that's what God has done. He's done that with the Jews. He's come in the New Testament. He's shown His eternal love for mankind. And He said, let me show you. You think, you think that I cannot... You think that you have fallen so far. You think that you, by your own ability, needs to do something. Let, let me show you something. Took Jesus, put him on a cross. You know what was the biggest thing for Adam and Eve? They ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't have scripture to prove this, but this is just what I think. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ends in death, isn't it? And there was Jesus hanging on the tree, showing to us what we partook of. Hanging on that tree, cursed, dying. But for us who partook of that, He made a promise and says, I promise you eternal life and that I can fix this. And my human heart couldn't believe it, but now we can see it. How God made that promise. And how Jesus didn't try to save Himself but believe the Father can save him from sin and death, my sin and your sin, for he didn't have his own. He was born of a virgin. Can you see why the virgin birth makes so much sense? Because if he takes sin and he had his own, you would have said, well, the Father liked him. But since he didn't have his own sin and he could only have yours, you have to conclude the Father loves you. Yeah. <laughs> because whose sin was it? To who was the promise made? To, who's, who, to what person? To you. To me. That's what the promise was made for. And he fulfilled his promise. And now faith is to believe that he has done this. And then the Bible says, I will come back. He will come back to this earth. You know, I, I see there are these days doctrines that says Christ is not returning anymore. <laughs> oh, man. And that we must now, by our faith, better the world. No. I mean, if we can't even lose weight by our faith, how are you going to change the world? <laughs> huh? And it's not just changing the world. Remember, you'll have to bring forth immortality to all the believers. 
That means you go to the graveyard and you're going to raise those guys, yeah. all of them. Mm. <laughs> and then when you preach that and you still struggle with age, you know, it's a problem, man. I can't trust you. I can't trust you with my life and I can't trust that kind of a doctrine to raise my kid if he's died and bring his body back into this world and recreate this world into a glorified world and make your body immortal. I don't know a man that has got that faith. There is not a guy. We're struggling to get people healed from cancer with our faith. We see people being healed, but we, don't, we, we can't just go in every hospital all the time and heal all people of cancer all the time. I've never seen such a man. I've never seen such a man. But there will be a guy that has promised and showed us the end of what he's done. He doesn't say, I will heal you. He shows you your... You know, when you behold the immortality in the body of Jesus, you are beholding your life. Because when he died, he died your life. And if he didn't have his own sin, and he ended sin, and he came up righteous, holy, without sin, immortal, whose life is that? If his death was yours, whose resurrection is that? It is yours. From where the God of the heaven and the earth will return and manifest that thing which he brought forth in the cross, in the earth, in everyone who has this spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So he's preaching now, and those who can receive this message, believe upon him, receives this spirit of life. And when he returns, this spirit of life, whatever part it owns, which is us that believe, he will make immortal, uh, uh, sinless, heal the flesh to the point that it cannot die. That is the gospel. That's the good news. The good news, the gospel, the original gospel, is not God is not angry or God has punished or something like that. The original gospel is I've conquered your sin, I've conquered your death, and you can live forever. And your body and your, your, you as a person can be preserved eternally. You will have life and not die. Even if you die, you'll be raised. And then there will be some folk in the return of Christ that has not died, but they'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. The gospel's message wasn't trying to get people to heaven. That's not good news. That sounds like Alberti, but that, that is very good news for what I've heard. Yes, for in the parameters of what we've heard, it is good news. But the real good news is, listen, Adam's, the issue God had with Adam was this dude is dying. He is dying. He went, the, he, he, within a thousand years, this guy passed away. And God's plan, God's word of eternal life was shown in Christ. The promise from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, Titus 1 verse 2. Um, Paul says, I am in the hope of eternal life which God has promised before time began. He promised us eternal life. So here man dies, but it was God's plan forever, and God made this promise. Man couldn't believe it, and then God came and showed it in our lives on the cross and in the resurrection so that we cannot be fooled about what eternal life really is. Eternal life is when you have got so much of God's life inside you that when you go to your grave, you find no bones there. That's eternal life. I promise you, people that sit in heaven today, that has died, that looks upon the body of Jesus, are awaiting the resurrection. For the difference between them and Christ is this. Their graves has got bones, but His doesn't. And they are awaiting something. Meaning that heaven is not as much heaven to them as what we thought. Not that it's a bad place, it's a very good place. But that's not the end. Mm -hmm. The end is salvation here. And God has shown it to us. You know what this message does for me? It sets me completely free from slavery. It doesn't make me hate my body. Uh -huh. yes. I don't hate my body. 
I love this body. And my mind, in my mind, it is included in the salvation thing. It's not, if I just lay this dirt bag down, I'm going, this is not a dirt bag. This is called the temple of the Most Holy God. The most wonderful thing that has happened to me is, I'm not looking anymore at myself. You see how Christ sets us free from the slavery thing, and we see the original plan. I don't look at myself anymore as, um, you know, just as I am just living inside a body. It's like a car saying he is an engine. I start to see that God's plan was to save the complete person. All of a sudden, I feel loved as a human, man. Yeah. You know, I kind of had to just look at my spirit so that I can feel God loves me. Yeah. Because my spirit is holy, and that's what God loves, and the rest is going to sort out, let's just take the spirit and just leave the rest, for I don't want the rest. No, God loves this human being. Amen. He became a human being, and He showed eternal life in putting a man with a physical body that doesn't have bones in his grave in the Godhead. Mm. I thank God that the grave was empty. Because you find so many theologies, you know, about, yeah, oh, this resurrection thing is a spiritual thing and whatever. Where's the bones? That's an issue, man. This body means nothing. Well, it seems as if God needed the bones of this old body to do something in the future with Jesus. The one guy came to me and said to me, Bertie, but you know, there are some people that, that got, like, vanished into nothing through the atom bomb. So how will they, their bodies be healed? It's like Jesus said, neither do you know the scriptures nor the power of God. Mm. <laughs> As if God's threatened by an atom bomb. Yeah. You will see an explosion in the return of Christ. And you will see how man explodes into immortality. Where our bodies are glorified with the power of the resurrection. When Jesus was raised, I tell you, there was a shaking. There was something that was taking place. There was a massive thing going on. When one, called the firstborn from the dead, was raised. And when we see and behold this, we can see how the Lord has fulfilled His promise to us, which was from the beginning. And as we behold this, we get out of mowing the lawn, we get out of all these kind of things, and doing things for the Father, joy floods our hearts, trust in the Father is, is restored, and all of a sudden, we look to other people, and we, we, can't, we start to see the value they have, we see how they have been included in what Christ has done, now we preach to them that they can believe this truth, and now we have a truth that we can actually preach. <laughs> yeah. Amen, that's good. Mm. Glory to God, man. Amen. Isn't God good? Yes. God is so good. He came to forgive us. Not with the forgiveness defined by Pharaoh, but with the forgiveness defined by the Father, which is not in terms of, I don't look at your sin. Now, let me end off with this. This slave, under these circumstances that he was in, when he was with his father at his father's house in the African village, he didn't live there with hatred, bitterness, resentment. He didn't have thoughts of murdering somebody. None of that. But when he came here, all of a sudden he finds thoughts of murdering someone. All the times, all the time he walks with this, 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 this hatred in his heart, which he never knew when he was with his father. But this situation, this death that he's in is bearing fruit in him. Okay? Now, do you think the Father, look at this, will impute the swear word he says when the Master beats him and whips him against him? No. <laughs> he will not. He will impute it or he will account that fruit that is coming forth there to the account of the system he's under. That's, right. that's what Paul would say. Paul would say, it's not I who sinned, but the sin in me that sinned. Mm. That's right. Amen. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Yes. In order for us to be in the cross, 
in order for us to be, I'm not saying saved, please, please hear what I'm saying, but in order for us to be in Christ, what qualifies us for that is sin. If you don't have sin, you couldn't be in the cross, because the cross was for sinners. <laughs> yeah. You had to be, you would have sin to qualify, to be a partaker in Christ. That's what the whole of Romans 1, 2, and 3 is all about. In its context. I mean, I don't want to have a Bible study here going through every verse. Go and study it for yourself. That's what's written there. He comes and he concludes the Jews are sinners, the Gentiles are sinners, and then it says he, he became sin. Jesus became sin. So he says, if the Jews are sinners because they couldn't keep the law, if the Gentiles are sinners because the law, they could have been believers by looking at nature and all those kind of things, and meantime they are sinners and they make these wooden things and whatever, the Jews have the law and they don't even keep the law. So the Jews are sinner, the Gentiles are sinner. So how will I, what, how will I reconcile these two? Very simple. Let me become sin. Then of the two, I can make one new man. What's a new man? The man, man is a sinner. And then he takes that man, ends his life on the cross, gets raised, and now the Bible says, be clothed with a new man. Mm. <laughs> be clothed with a new man. I'm not saying everybody is saved, I don't believe in that. But what I'm saying is God ended the old man, the man of sin. And in order for you to be in Christ on the cross, you had to have sin. Because that happened long before you even could believe. And now, with what happened on the cross and what it concludes, we preach. And then when we believe that, we are saved now. And we shall be saved from death. In either being changed in the twinkling of an eye or in being raised from the grave. Glory to God. You know, when Paul talked about the resurrection, being raised from the dead, you know what they said to Paul? They said, Paul, much learning has made you crazy. <laughs> but I want to tell you that we will be in the likeness of His resurrection. And He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered this bitterness and this hatred and whatever that came up in our life. Plus, He conquered the system that kept us there. And He conquered the slavery system, brought us back to the Father, and is presenting us in Christ. And if we can believe that, we find that spirit of life entering us, bringing life to us. We even find the fruit of that spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, meekness, temperance, faithfulness. And even the gifts of that spirit of life the working of miracles, praying in tongues, and all those kind of things. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. God has come to restore and forgive. Not as the Pharaoh forgives, but as God forgives, defining forgiveness as setting free. We are setting free from our sins, our bad deeds. We're being delivered from that. The guilt we've had according to the law system, we deliver from that. Plus, we deliver from something we could not ever deliver ourselves from, which is death. Yeah. So many times we want to find deliverance through little things we do. Unless the thing you do can raise you from the grave, it's not worth investing in. If my tithing cannot make me immortal, it doesn't, it's not worth trying to find salvation from poverty with that. Because if it cannot raise me from the dead, because this poverty and all this hatred and bitterness and whatever is in my heart comes from death. It must have greater power than death in order to set me free from the fruit of death. So works cannot save us. We need something more powerful than death. And that is the resurrected Christ. And believe on Him that He will just do it. And He does. <laughs> Glory to God. Amen. I think I've preached long enough. <laughs> so, yeah, amen. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank You so much for Your grace and Your mercy and Your kindness and Your goodness. Thank You. You've come to set us free.
You've come to save us from the grave. You've come to save us from sin. Thank you that, that Lord, when we, we were bearing fruit unto death through the law, but you have ended that whole thing. You've ended it for the Jew. You've ended it for the Gentile. And you've come and you've given us eternal life. And you've conquered the power that stings us with sin, manifesting sin in us, called death. We've seen it. That which we've heard, which was from the beginning, which our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hands have handled as pertaining to the word of life. We see that and we experience that. Thank you, Lord. You're such a good God. Thank you that you love man and you've decided to come and set us free for it is not right that we live under this. Thank you that you're a just God and that you've came and you have declared your judgment, which is your decision, your judgment is these people don't belong to Pharaoh. They must be free. We love your judgment. We love your vengeance. You came in with a vengeance. And you destroyed what de what's destroying us and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. Amen, amen. amen.